This is the Data Science Conversations podcast with Damien Dehan and Dr. Philip Diesinger, featuring cutting-edge AI and data science research from the world's leading academic minds, so you can expand your knowledge and grow your career. This show is sponsored by Data Science Talent. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Professor Philip Cohn, who is one of the world's leading authorities on machine translation and is currently a professor at Johns Hopkins University. In this episode, we delve into the commercial applications of machine translation. We talk about some of the open source tools available, and we also take a look into what to expect in the field in the future. We have talked about translations from an input language to an output language. Um, how about translations within a given language? Are those a viable topic as well? Uh, say between different accents or from from a jargon like medical English uh, to more understandable casual English? There is a whole... It's not as big as a field because it's not clear what the applications really are. So what you described there is maybe an application, but it's not really that you know, big and pressing application as, as machine translation is. So this is called paraphrasing. How can you reword things? Um, there's a group here at Johns Hopkins who has been for a long time working on paraphrasing and built a big paraphrasing database. They build a new paraphraser now that actually works like a machine translation system. So the whole task is then translate from English to English and it basically is trained as a multilingual machine translation system where you just throw in all kinds of language pairs so it learns to map between English languages so you can also force it to learn how to map between English and English. There's no real training data in that space actually. There's not much text written with the same meaning. I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe different translations of books you know, that, that exists, but then literature often they go very far from the original meaning. Yeah, the goals are things like yeah, style, you know, levels of formality and readability. That's probably in a dimension that, that does make sense. So a simple Wikipedia, or maybe you can train it from complex Wikipedia to simple Wikipedia. It's a it's a much tougher field. A, it's not quite clear what the application is, and B, is there's no ground truth. It's much harder to evaluate that. What are typical data sets you're using to train your machine translation models? Everything we can get our hands on. So when I started machine translation, the group I was with worked on Arabic and Chinese, and I didn't like that because I couldn't read either. And so I wanted to work on German English, and I came across the European Parliament has the public debates out on a web, and they translated into all the official languages, which back then were 13 different languages, now they're 28 different languages. So you can just download all the web pages. They're also nicely marked up. Here's speaker so-and-so, and he says this, and then you have the French translation speaking so-and-so. And it's, so it's very easy to figure out which blocks of text belong to which blocks of text. It's not that hard to then break it down to a sentence level. So that is a big data resource that was used for a long time. It's about the 50 million words of translated text for all the big, uh, all the official EU languages. And a lot of the other publicly available data sets are similar. There is a big United Nations corpus, but it's only for Chinese, Arabic, Spanish, French, English. There is one interesting corpus is uh, open subtitles. Apparently people like to create, translate, 
I think this comes also from the day of first you pirate all the TV shows and then you want to watch them in Chinese, but you don't understand it because all is in English. So people actually, you know, first create subtitles and then translate the subtitles. There's actually a vast reservoir in the order of hundreds of millions of words of translated subtitles. For a lot of languages, the quality is pretty shady. So th this kind of material. Uh, we have a big project right now running for now three, four years, still with the University of Edinburgh, where I was before, and other groups in Spain, University of Alicante, where we go out on the web and just crawl any website there is. This is something that Google has been doing since the very beginning when they got engaged in machine translation. They had the advantage they already downloaded the entire internet because they're a search engine. We now have to we always were a bit envious. Oh, they do better because they have more data. And at, at some point, I thought, like, we should stop with the whining. We have access to the internet. We can download everything. So that's what we did. We just download hundreds of thousands of websites and try to find translated text on them. So that's another large resource. So usually find some good gold mines of good data uh, where there's consistently translated nicely formatted so you know what the source text matches to which target text or you just go out on the web and just crawl whatever you can get and the amounts of data we're talking about there is for the biggest language pairs in the order of billions of words that is probably more than you can read in your lifetime but then it does taper off towards the next 50 next 100 languages where there's just not that much web presence at all You mentioned using debate data from the European Parliament. Is that language not very specific and would that not have an impact on the translation? Depends on what the application is. We've been organizing competitions on machine translation in the academic community for the last 15 years. And there we use as a tested news stories because it's tough. I mean, it has a very broad domain. Like they can talk about in MNB sports, it might be natural disasters, it might be political events. And it's relatively complex language, average sentence length, like 25, 30 words. For that, we found the European Parliament proceedings very useful because they talk about the same subjects. But it's a, it's a particular type of, of language. Other area where people currently get very excited about is translation of speech and spoken language. And spoken language is very different from written language. Even parliament proceedings, which formally are spoken, but except they are then transcribed and all the disfluencies and ungrammaticalities are removed and it's cleanly formatted text and often it's just read speech. So there's a real mismatch between the data you need to train those engines and, and the data you actually have from official publications and, and that's a real problem. What role does infrastructure and technology play for machine translation? So it's been for a while pretty compute heavy because we're talking about data sizes in, in, in the gigabytes as, as training data. We were in Statistics MT, I think we were always in a situation where I always like to say a grad student at a university could do meaningful research. They had access to all the data, all the data is publicly available. There was a lot of open source code, so you can actually just download the software, run it, and then work on improvements. And the machines you needed were just kind of typical modern compute servers and a single machine was good enough. This did change a bit with the advent of neural networks because suddenly you need GPU servers. And this seems to be a field where just throwing more compute resources at it, you actually do get better results. 
you can build more complex models so you can measure the complexity of neural networks by how many layers it has so you can build models with five six seven layers but you can also build models with 20 layers except they train then you know many many times slower for the big language pairs where you do have a billion word corpus yeah training does take weeks it's become a little bit a problem because now suddenly we in academia are struggling a bit with competing with the big industry labs which easily have, you know, a thousand GPUs. Well, for us, a GPU costs by itself a thousand, two thousand dollars. You need to put it in a computer. So a computer with four GPUs costs ten thousand dollars. So you're gonna, as academic institutions, I mean, we have a pretty big lab here at Hopkins because we have been the Center for Language and Speech Processing is just a large research center. But even us, we have about a hundred, two hundred GPUs available for, you know, fifty PhD students, and that's a crunch. They're always overloaded. So there's certain research we cannot do in academia anymore because we can't just run the amount of experiments that can be run in industry. One thing that I read somewhere in a paper that really threw me off was not a machine translation, was a language modeling. It was like, oh yeah, this model trained in a week on a thousand GPUs. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that's just the end of it. And there's this paper, GPT-3, that maybe some listeners are familiar with. Uh, that's a big language model trained on massive amounts of data. And uh, I try to compute how many machines they use, but it's in the order of 50,000 GPU days. And that's, you know, that's just insanity. And just even people in industry were like, wow, that's insanity. But even there, they showed it hasn't converged yet. It hasn't finished yet. If you would throw more computer on it, if you throw bigger corpora on it, you would still probably get a little bit better. So we, yeah, we're currently definitely in a situation where, yeah, so compute is a limitation. And what you can practically do is, is limiting what kind of models you can develop. How does academic research translate into industry applications? There's different motivations for researchers in, in academia. I mean, ultimately, students and researchers work on what's fun. We're a little bit guided by big funding projects. So in the US, DARPA has been funding machine translation for quite a while, and they are interested in basically understanding foreign language text and uh, more recently also towards the languages that are not covered by Google. So the last project I was involved with, in, we had to translate from Somali and whatever Ethiopian languages and, you know, just languages that just Google Translate doesn't exist for. So that drives some research. Um, since we've been organizing this share task on news translation, that drives a lot of research. That's kind of the data set that, you know, scores are around. Um, and generally, machine translation research and academia are not that concerned about the end application. And there are quite different end applications. So you mentioned Google Translate. So that's the challenge of translating web pages into something understandable. The bar is actually not that high because it just has to be understandable. It can have mistakes and that's fine. It just has to be understandable. So Facebook has a similar problem of people post stuff in different languages and the translation has to be understandable. They have a bit of a tougher time because what people write on Facebook messages is not as polished as what people write on web pages. So you have you know creative language and made up terms and acronyms and emoticons all over the place and all kinds of inside jokes in the language. That's just really hard to translate. The big commercial application for translation is actually completely different. This is mostly companies who want to globalize their products. They have to translate marketing materials. They have to translate documentations of products. 
yeah, at Omniscient Technology, one of the big areas they work on is the translation of subtitles for movies and TV shows. So if you want to sell your Hollywood TV shows into the Indonesian market, well, you got to have at least have Indonesian subtitles. That quality bar is much higher because you're delivering translations to someone who just expects to understand and read it without problems. And if there are errors, they're going to be annoyed. They're not going to be appeased by saying, okay, that is machine translation, deal with it. So this is still something where having humans involved in nowadays, mostly post-editing the machine translation that has become the practice in the field, not just translating from scratch, but post-editing and machine translation is, is a key part of it. Could you give our audience a brief overview of what's available in terms of open source in the field of machine translation? We have a very nice culture in machine translation of uh, having publicly available, you can literally go to a website and without even registering for it. A really good website for that is Opus from um, Jörg Tiedemann in, in, at the University of um, Helsinki, who basically collected all kinds of parallel data for all kinds of language pairs. So data is publicly available and tools are also publicly available. So in Statistics MT, I was leading this Moses machine translation project, which was the dominant tool for machine translation back then. Nowadays, there are several implementations of neural machine translation. It seems like every year or every half a year, a new one pops out. And they're also all publicly available. So literally the system, for instance, that, that Facebook uses in their research at their AI lab, uh, which is called FairSeq, you can actually download the entire source code and run the same code on your machines. I, I want to a little bit temper this impression that because of the resource use, academia cannot do interesting stuff anymore. I don't think that's literally that true i think there are certain things we can do like high resource kind of massive explorations of different model architectures that is kind of off limits but 90 percent of the good ideas still come out of academia and it's just a much broader field of people and a much higher pressure to generate papers and new ideas and publish them And it, it did shift a little bit that most of the academia nowadays works on low resource languages, language pairs where you don't have much data. And I mean, still all the all the problems that exist, like for instance, shift of domain and subject matter and style and, and, and so on, and, and different ways to train it. Because there's not just parallel data. What can you do with just monolingual data? There's, there's a whole exciting area of uh, machine translation that says, can we learn to translate if we actually don't have any translated text? Here's a pile of English. Here's a pile of German. Can you learn to translate from just seeing that? And it seems to be somewhat successful. It's not as good as having translated text, but it's there. And And anyway, there's lots of other kind of challenging ideas and interesting ideas out there. How far do you think is machine translation away from passing a Turing test? I think to ultimately, to flawlessly and achieve translation, I'm not making any predictions that we're going to reach that. I think in, in machine translation, it has some interesting history of overselling and, and under-delivering under and going through various hype cycles. And being very aware of that in like statistical machine translation data is we were very careful not to promise too much. And then all these deep learning people showed up and they just made extravagant claims. And that's where people make claims about parody of human translation and so on. And everybody else was cringing. So I think good measure of machine translation is always, is it good enough for a particular purpose? 
So if I go to a French newspaper website and there's a French newspaper story about whatever um, President Macron is doing and I run it through Google Translate and I can perfectly understand the story, maybe there's some detail here and they're missing and maybe it's an artifact of me not knowing too much about the intricacies of, of French politics but that's good enough if i you know want to buy a metro ticket in paris and the translation of websites allows me to buy a metro or if i can go to a foreign country and order a pizza or whatever or ask for directions or have a conversation with someone even it doesn't have to be perfect it has to be good enough that's one measure the other measure is you know does it make professional human translators that ultimately going to produce high quality translation doesn't make them more productive. So if you can make them twice as fast, that saves enormous amounts of money. And that's kind of always the measuring step. It's not like you solve the problem, you're done. And before that, it's useless. It's more like the better it gets, the more users are there for it and, and so on. But ultimately, we're dealing with language and it is an AI hard problem. So if you would actually do translation perfectly, I mean, you could just construct any kind of intelligence test as a translation <laughs> challenge and just basically write a story in a way that you can only translate it correctly if you actually understand the deep meaning of the story. And you can always check it. I have in my book this example of whenever I visit my uncle and his daughters, I, I don't know who is my favorite cousin. And it's the daughters of the uncle, so the cousins are female. Cousins in English is not gendered, but if I translate that into German, I have, I have to pick a gender for that. And from the story, it's clear that they're female cousins. This kind of world knowledge that's required to do this reasoning, I mean, that's kind of the deep AI knowledge that we don't have right now and and we don't have in our neural models either. So yeah, any kind of claims currently of human parity is, is questionable. And maybe one reason why people make these kind of, or can make these kind of claims is because what are you actually comparing against? You don't compare against the ideal human doing a perfect translation. You compare against some crowdsourced translator who didn't really care, who just ran things to World Translate and fixed up some words and submitted that. So yeah, we may be able to beat that, but we're not gonna, we're not close to perfect translation, and we don't have to be. And it's also, I think we started with that. It's an impossible task anyway. So there's always gonna be someone, no matter what translation you produce, there's always gonna be someone who says, "Nah, that's just not right. And that's a mistake. I don't like that." These are kind of unrelated topics, but looking to the future, so Elon Musk reckons that he'll have Neuralink available to be implanted in people's brains within the next uh, 18 to 24 Isn't months. Is he also promising self-driving cars every month and then it never happens? Five years ago, yes. <laughs> so, and, and maybe this is part of the hype cycle, but do you ever see a situation where we do have the microchips in the brain and we can literally download French um, straight into the human brain, and then all of us are out of a job, especially you, Philip. <laughs> so, uh, I'm I'm not a neuroscience. So I'm not sure exactly how much you can manipulate the brain. Uh, arguably, we are in an already kind of hybrid cyborgs. I mean, we all have our cell phones. Yeah. I mean, we don't remember phone numbers anymore, or you know, our meeting schedule. It's all kind of. <laughs> phone peeps and says, okay, I have to talk to this person now. So we already offloaded some of our memory capacity to machines. And if you look at like, I don't know, back to machine translation, if you look at the process of, you know, 
people post-editing machine translation, that's also kind of a machine-man interaction that's taking place. But yeah, not not a big believer in microtrophs and the brain doing anything useful anytime soon. <laughs> Your recent book that was published in June, at least in, in Europe, uh, it came out in June this year, Neural Machine Translation. Do you want to just basically uh, highlight for who that's suitable for and, and what you've attempted to do with that book? Yeah, so that book came out now exactly 10 years after my first book, which was Statistical Machine Translation. So this is now Neural Machine Translation, and it kind of emerged out of yeah, I need to update the book because now all these neural methods are out there. But now neural methods have completely overtaken the field that everything I've done before is kind of not interesting anymore. So the book is a, it starts out as a kind of a gentle introduction into what the problem of translation, the history of machine translation, the history of neural network research, what the problem is, what the applications are. Um, uh, the core of the book is kind of the, the core technology, how it works. And, and there it's kind of directed at graduate students. So I'm teaching a class now at Hopkins here in the fall on machine translation, and that's going to be the textbook for the class where every lecture is one chapter. So it's geared towards people who actually then implement the code and understand the code and uh, understand the models mathematically and, and so on. And it goes kind of in the later chapters to all the kind of open challenging things. Some of them we kind of address like adapting models to different domains, how to actually represent words. Uh, besides uh, individual tokens, maybe character sequences, and so on and so on. There's, there's also one chapter, which is something we didn't talk about, is um, how do we interpret the models? So we build all these very complicated neural machine translation models, and we don't really know how they do it. And I'm still amazed that they work at all based on that they are really guided by very simple principles, but how do they do it? is kind of one of these big questions. And yes, you can look at the models, but all you're going to see is millions of numbers. So that's not very informative. So how can you maybe probe them? Can you know what is in these different representation states? So it goes through these layers of representations. Do, do syntactic representations emerge? Do semantic representations emerge? Um, especially the what would be useful is if it makes mistakes to figure out why did it make the mistake? How can I fix it? And we don't really have any good answers to that right now. There's a whole interesting subfield on interpreting these models. So I'm talking about that a little bit in the book too. How do you visualize some of the internal processes? Or how can you understand kind of the internal workings of these models? What, what are the implications for us going forward for if we don't figure out what the models or what the black box is doing and why it's doing it? You can have a very cynical take on the whole thing that uh, there are certainly people in the field of natural language processing and it's either called natural language processing or computational linguistics. So they're somewhat synonymous, but they're, they're, the intent is different. Computational linguistics, ultimately the idea, we're going to learn something about language. So we seem to be, I mean, it's putting a bit crass or maybe extreme, but maybe let's say, we're almost close to solving machine translation and we haven't learned anything about language. <laughs> There's something going on inside these models that does language well enough to be effective, but we actually don't know. And as if, you know, we don't suddenly know what syntax is and grammar and morphology. We actually didn't learn anything about it. It's just you throw data into a black box and it spit something out. And what's going on inside is actually a big mystery to us. 
That's a sad note to end, isn't it? Well, I don't think it is necessarily sad. It's pr- yeah. it's probably a field all of its own. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. putting it a bit extreme. I mean, obviously, a lot of people who are really interested in figuring out what's inside, and you can. I mean, you have actually. It's it's better than brain scanning because you actually have a super clear picture of what's going on inside these models. You mentioned the black box feel of the neural networks you're training. Um, do you see evidence that language might be an emerging property of a complex system? No, I think it's a it's a very interesting question. Like what do you, like yeah, what what does it actually say, for instance, about uh, image recognition or language? I mean, we have all these kind of physics envy of reducing the world to a few formula, and then I mean that doesn't seem to work for problems like language, where you just have a few rules and that's it. And and what's then the answer? I mean. We, we can discover principles that are true 90% of the time. There's a, there's a German saying, the rule is proven by its contradiction. <laughs> there's always an exception that kind of proves the rule. And language is a lot like this. Like you know, I think this is definitely one of the grand challenges of the field, that trying to understand what's going on. Because it's also important from an engineering perspective. Because right now, if something goes wrong... What can you do? I mean, yeah, maybe some intuition about changing some parameter settings or just more layers or more training data or massaging your training data a bit better. And none of them really go to the root of the problem. They're just kind of accommodated. You've trained hundreds of these models now, the uh, neural networks. What's your best hunch if you had to uh, make a guess about how the black box is figuring all this stuff out? Well, there's some things that it seems to be doing similar to, to how, how human translate and how our original models did this. There's so definitely a sense of when it produces an output word that it, it, it creates a link to the source word that is most important. And uh, in the original models, this was a bit easier to visualize where you can actually look at, the, for instance, word alignments. But yeah, what drives these decisions is, is less clear. I mean, there are, there are people who looked at these intermediate layers, and as I said earlier, that you know you can map certain properties of the representations to our classical senses of you know is this a noun or a verb? Does it discover that some things are nouns and verbs? And apparently, there's something like this that that does emerge that you can map, learn from the representations. Oh yeah, it, it detected this is a noun. Although I mean, it's not saying noun inside the model, but it goes through some of these stages. Um, Actually, but we had, like, I think, in our reading group here two weeks ago where people were arguing about, you know, should the encoder be bigger or the decoder be bigger? And one of the questions was, like, where does it learn actually to reorder? And where does it learn to reorder? Where, where does the reordering kicks in? Where does it know that it has to change the sentence order? And it's, we don't know. It's an interesting thing to explore, but it's at least an actionable question that you can maybe trace down. A lot of these interpretation questions are just a bit, uh, I want to understand what it does. That's not a very clearly defined question. That's not a question you can answer. I mean, what kind of answer do you want? You have to be a bit more specific what kind of answer you want. And, and, and that's where everything gets always a bit hazy and shaky. And yeah, what, 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 what explanation actually would satisfy you? Just a couple more questions. One on kind of personal productivity, because your your output over the years in, uh, in terms of publications has been prolific. 
Have you got any words of inspiration or uh, advice for aspiring academics or indeed data scientists uh, about how you manage all the things that you manage? Well, I mean, I am a professor at a university, so my students do all the work. Uh, <laughs> well, that's one way to put it. I mean, definitely, if you look at the publications, most of them are authored by the students. Um, when I was a student, yeah, I mean... And the advice I give to students is do the things you actually care about and you're interested in. And that's my experience with students. They're kind of like, it's like herding cats. They have the ideas. They want to do it. It's hard to tell them, do this and do that. They're not going to do this and that. They do what they want. And that's that's important as a PhD student and as a researcher that you find the things you're interested in. Um, another good advice is just like work on, there's always a challenge between like the, the grant challenge and the low-hanging fruit. And you need to balance that somewhat. You need to do some things that, you already know they're going to work probably and they're easy to do and you should do them. And then there are things that are kind of the grand challenges. So it's it's one risk is to kind of only pursue the grand challenges and then after years and years, never really have anything to show for. So you have to break it up into smaller pieces and yeah, and work on multiple projects at the same time. And some might get stuck. In, in research, the big challenge is always to say after months of work, this is not going anywhere and I should just stop doing it. It's, that's a hard decision to make, like admitting that oh, this months of work are actually completely useless. Yeah, I, th so. I think that's a big challenge in business as well. Once a certain amount of time and money has been sunk into a project, yeah. no one wants to uh, close the lid on it. So. So that brings us sadly to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you so much to Professor Cohen and Dr. Deisinger for their fantastic questions, answers, and many, many insights. Uh, thanks also to you for listening. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, uh, would you mind helping us out by subscribing and leaving us a review on your preferred platform? You can also connect with us uh, and give us some feedback on the usual social media channels, particularly LinkedIn and Twitter. And we look forward to having your company again on our next episode. <laughs>